Amen. Well, good morning, Whitefields. Hope you're enjoying your long weekend. Um, if you got your Bible, we're going to be in Genesis. We're in chapter 3 right now. So as we turn there, why don't we go ahead and begin in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we, we open up your word, Lord, with expectation. We open it up with the expectation, Lord, that you are here by your spirit and that you are here to speak to us and that you want to transform our lives, Lord. You want to transform us evermore into the image of Christ, the image of perfection. And Lord, we want to just give you permission to do exactly that today. So Lord, we ask, be here, teach us, and give us ears to hear. Lord, give us hearts to receive the message of your word to us today. And Lord, we just ask for you to speak to us. Speak into our lives, Lord, because you are our Lord. And Lord, we, we want to let you have lordship over us. So this morning, we just give you free reign to speak to us and to transform us even more into the image of Christ. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, for the past few weeks, we've been studying through Genesis. Uh, this has been a very rich study. I hope that you are getting as much out of it as I am. So uh, last week we left off and we saw the first man and the first woman in the garden that God had created for them. It was uh, paradise. They were living the dream, you know. Have, they had a good life. And they're in paradise. No matter how good their circumstances were, it didn't mean that sin couldn't come in and tempt them. And we saw there the first sin, the first act of disobedience. They're in the Garden of Eden. And last week we talked about the immediate consequences of their sin, which was shame. And there was a breakdown in their relationships with God and their relationships with each other. And you know, uh, you could really say that the story of Adam and Eve isn't just the, the story of what happened, but it is the story of what happens. We live out that story day by day. It happens in real time in the world that we live in. You know, uh, it's not just what happened with the consequences of sin at that time, but it is what happens. It is the true story of human history, and it's repeated again and again. Uh, this week, though, whereas last week we looked at the immediate consequences of their sin, this week we're going um, to look at the big picture, the bigger picture of the consequence of their sin. Because what happened is that their sin not only affected them, as individuals. It didn't only affect their relationships, but their sin uh, affected actually all of creation. Uh, and it affects us today as well in a very real way. So today we're going to be talking about the curse of sin, but we're also going to be talking about the covering that God provided. And, and the thing that's amazing as we study through Genesis is this, and I, I hope you've seen it as we've gone along. I certainly see it, is that every way, every, every step along the way, we see the gospel. We see the gospel coming up over and over in Genesis. God's plan of redemption and restoration of fallen creation. And we have hope because of this great gospel of God's grace. So let's go ahead and read. I'm actually, we're going to, to get the full picture, I want to go back to chapter 2. So if you got your Bible, we're going to start out in chapter 2, verse 8. It says this, 
The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We talked about these two trees last week. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Chapter 3 from verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And verse 16, now we see the curse Uh, To the woman, he said, the Lord God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away, or turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. I'm going to break this down into three parts for you. From verse 16 to verse 19 of chapter 3, we're going to be talking about the curse. From verses 20 and 21, we're going to be talking about the covering. And from verses 22 to 24, we're going to be talking about the sword. So let's start off by talking about the curse. God had told Adam and Eve, he told them not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And why? What did he say? What was his reason? He said, because in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And you remember the serpent came along and that was his lie. What was his lie? He said, no, you won't die. That's not true. Just go ahead and do it. Enjoy yourself. Do whatever you want. And that was a lie. And here's what happened when Adam and Eve sinned. Death entered the world. This is the story of the curse. Death entered the world. Death entered into human history. Death entered into creation. Paul the Apostle, he explained it in this way in Romans chapter 5. He said, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. So we look around the world and we see a lot of stuff that just, we just look at it and say, that's not the way it should be. We see disaster, we see disease, we see death, we see problems and pollution and pain. And we have this sense that these things are wrong. 
that this is not the way that things should be. And, and, and you know why all this is? It's because of, it's the result of sin. Because sin by nature is destructive. Sin by nature is destructive, right? And all the problems that we see and experience in this world, they're all related to sin. They're all the result of sin. See, sin itself, though, is the outworking of pride. Unrestrained pride. That is the root of all sin. It was the root of the original sin that we talked about last week. It was the root of the original human sin as well. Sin itself is an outworking of pride. Uh, You know, unchecked pride gives birth to sin, and sin results in death and destruction. You know, there's this saying that I used to always tell our church in Hungary. I had like this like list of sayings, you know, and I would just really pound them into these, uh, this church because, I, you know, it's so fundamental. And one of these uh, sayings that I used to always just repeat to our church in Hungary was this. I have it up on the screen. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. That is a fundamental understanding that we must have about the character of God, about why he tells us not to sin, and about the nature of sin. So sin is not bad because it's forbidden, but sin is forbidden because it's bad. In other words, the reason why God tells us not to sin is simply because he's smarter than we are, and he knows that sin uh, causes nothing but destruction. And as a loving father, he wants to protect us from pain and hurt. And and so he tells us not to sin, just like he told Adam and Eve not to sin, because he said, in the day that you do of it, you'll surely die. So what we see is this. Adam and Eve sinned by rebelling against God. Lost my place here. They sinned by rebelling against God. Not only uh, were they affected by it individually, but all of nature was affected. We read in verse 17 of chapter 3, he said, Cursed is the ground because of you. All of nature was affected. Uh, Not only was nature affected, but Adam and Eve's descendants would also be affected. And that includes us. Uh, We read in verse 19 that just as Adam came from the dust, now he would also return to the dust. In the meantime, he would have to work the ground. It means that in the end, dirt wins. And he said, you will have to die. And, And when Adam chose to rebel against God, here's what happened. The whole world was plunged into sin. Nature was impacted. The ecology of the earth was changed radically. Disease and death entered in. And from that point on, man would be born with a nature of depravity. Uh, Through one man, this is what Paul said, sin entered the world and death through sin. So death spread to all men. And a really important principle for us to know is this, that sin never happens in a vacuum, right? Sin doesn't just affect the person who sins. It also affects all those people who are connected to them in some way. All those who are around them. It affects their children, their family, their friends. It has this ripple effect. All of Adam's descendants were affected by sin. And the same is true of you and I. If you and I sin, it doesn't just affect us individually. It affects people around us who are connected to us. Uh, And it's destructive. So... So Adam's descendants were affected by sin. Sin entered the world, and every person since then is born with a a fallen, sinful nature. Our human nature itself was corrupted when sin entered the world. And what that means is that sin and evil are a part of who we are by nature now. We have this propensity, naturally, to sin 
and to rebel against God. It is the most natural thing in the world to us. In other words, here's another saying for you. In other words, we aren't sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners by nature. Doesn't mean it's not our fault. It's just a good understanding of our human nature. We're, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners by nature. Anyone who has children knows this very well. You don't have to teach them to sin. They do that very naturally. You have to teach them not to sin. Uh, but what's really important to understand is, in this world that we live in is, is this. Kind of a, let me just take a second to talk about worldview and about how you know, not everybody sees things the way we do, so it's important to understand how other people think. Uh, it's important to understand the world we live in, starting with the Enlightenment, right? There was a certain set of ideas which became increasingly popular and widespread. And the ideas that I'm referring to are what we would generally call a, a modern secular worldview. And, and you know what a worldview is, right? It's like kind of like, I imagine like a worldview as being like a map. Right? Which kind of gives you your bearings uh, to, by answering the big questions of life. Like, where did we come from? Where are we going? What is the problem? And what is the remedy or the solution? So, I kind of imagine it like this. that, Like in Europe, right? Or here too, in, in bigger cities like New York. You, you arrive in a, a city by a train, right? And, and you get off the train and you're in the center of this big city, and there's all kinds of people doing stuff, going places, and they're hurrying in different directions, and you just get dropped off right in the middle of it, and it can be kind of disorienting. And, and that's kind of what life is like, in a way, that you're, you're just plopped down in the middle of this big world. There's a lot of activity going on, and if you don't get your bearings on things, then it can be quite dizzying. And, uh, and what many people do practically is that they see a group of people walking in one direction and they say well those people seem to know where they're going and what they're doing so I guess I'll just join them you know and go with them they don't necessarily know where they're going but there's a lot of people going that way so they just go along with the crowd now the word of God is like a map it gives a comprehensive worldview so you get plopped down in the middle of this, this busy city that is life, and the Word of God is like a map that gives you your bearings. It helps you find your place in this big picture of life with everything that's going on and everything that's come before and everything that's going to come after. And, and, and that way, you're able to place yourself on the map, the big picture, and you're able to say, well, there is a big crowd of people going that way. But I don't want to go that way. I want to go this way because this is the way that leads to life. This is the good stuff. This is the stuff I want to be a part of. And this is the way that leads to life. So, as you know, the biblical worldview isn't the only worldview out there. Apart from the biblical worldview, as I, as I mo just mentioned, uh, perhaps the most popular and widespread worldview out there is the modern secular worldview. So, so let me just lay it out for you. Whereas the, the Bible would answer these big questions of life in the following way, right? Like, where did we come from? Well, we came from God. Where are we going? Well, we're, we're going real quickly towards eternity. For some people, eternal life, and for others, eternal death. What is the problem in the world? The problem is sin. And what is the remedy? The remedy is the finished work of Christ on the cross. Now, as opposed to that, the modern secular worldview would answer those questions in this way. They would say, well, where did we come from? Well, we evolved from primitive forms of life. Where are we going? 
Well, we're going nowhere. This life is all there is, so live it up. And what is the problem? Well, the problem is society. And what is the remedy? Well, the remedy is better education, better social and political institutions. So, see, you can see those are diametrically opposed worldviews. So, the modern secular worldview, it rejects this biblical idea that we're talking about today. That there is such a thing as evil. And that evil is actually a part of our sinful human nature. And that people do evil things because unless God intervenes and gives us a new heart, our hearts are deceitfully wicked. You know, the, the modern secular worldview rejects that there is anything supernatural. And therefore, they would say that everything can be explained by natural causes. It says, essentially, that people are basically good. And the only reason people do bad things is because of outside influences that they encounter during their development, right? So, so whereas the Bible would say that we're sinners by nature, that evil is part of our fallen human condition, you cannot eradicate sin by fixing society— uh, you can actually only fix society by dealing with the, the root problem of sin. Uh, and we would say that what people really need is to be transformed and born again and changed from the inside out. But see, the, the modern uh, secular worldview, it, it's still very popular. But you need to know this, that its influence is actually eroding, and it's eroding very quickly. Here's a quote I found from... Uh, a man named Steven Pinker. He is a professor of psychology at uh, MIT, and this was written in the New York Times. It says this, uh, The prevailing wisdom among intellectuals has been that evil has nothing to do with human nature and must be attributed to social political institutions. Any who have dissented from the saccharine view have been picketed and smeared but distinct patterns of cruelty and callousness have come up repeatedly in history, cutting across all times, places, and political systems. So, so here's the deal. The idea that the human race is evolving and making progress, which will eventually lead to the extinction of violence and hatred and oppression and all forms of evil, it was a very popular worldview, but... It's starting to erode, and part of the reason for that is this, that, that uh, the, in the middle of the 20th century, you know, when after the world had become advanced technologically and educationally and politically, we saw some of the greatest atrocities that have ever happened in our world's history. In an age when, according to the modern secular worldview, we should have evolved and developed past these kinds of things, the, these atrocities erupted with just great force on a huge scale, right? We're talking about uh, World, War World War I, right, with gases and people, you know, hurting each other, killing each other. Communism is this great form of oppression, you know, other oppressive dictatorships. World War II, fascism, the Holocaust, genocide in Rwanda, genocide in Bosnia, anarchy in Somalia, acts of terrorism even here in America, etc., etc. And the modern secular worldview doesn't know what to say about this because they've gotten rid of the idea of evil. They don't believe that people are sinful by nature. They don't have a category to explain these kinds of things. They've gotten rid of the category of evil and sin and the idea and the term. And the problem is that throughout the 20th century, as it goes on and now into the 21st century, 
people have been forced to see that there is such a thing as sin and evil and that it's a, it's a part of the human condition. Acts of atrocity have not gone away as we have become better educated. Rather, like I said, they, they erupted with ferocity across this entire political and social spectrum. Uh, and, and what it's caused is, is a great dilemma for, for modern secular thinkers uh, who reject the biblical explanation, which is very clear-cut, which says that humanity has fallen and sinful by nature. It, it, and they say, the Bible would say that it's deeper than just psychology or sociology. And, and therefore, what we really need in the, the most fundamental way, what we really need is a redeemer who will change us and change who we are from the inside out, beginning with our heart. One, one writer pointed out, uh, a very, pointed out that a very vivid summary of this dilemma which faces the modern thinker is, uh, is found in, the, in this book, which later became a movie, which is called The Silence of the Lambs. Uh, now this part that I'm going to quote is from the book, so you won't find it in the movie. Um, What's happening right in the Silence of the Lambs? There's this guy, Hannibal Lecter. He is the great serial killer. And he's being interviewed by this woman who is a police officer. Her name is Officer Starling. And, and Officer Starling is looking at Hannibal Lecter. And she's looking at the atrocious things that he's done. And she's looking at his nonchalant attitude, like he just really doesn't care. And, uh, and she asks him a question. She asks him, what happened to you? that made you become like this. And you see, that itself reveals uh, where she's coming from. She is the quintessential modern secular person. She assumes that Hannibal Lecter only does bad things because surely some outside influence caused him to become a bad person. Maybe he was raised wrong. Maybe society influenced him, made him do bad things. But certainly, she assumes that it couldn't have come from within him. And Hannibal Lecter just slam dunks the modern secular worldview. And this is what he says. He says, Nothing has happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You cannot reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you not stand to say that I am evil? So the modern secular worldview has no category for people like Hannibal Lecter. There's no explanation for a person who grew up in a, a nice family, in a nice town, went to a nice school, and still commits acts of atrocity for no good reason at all. The Christian worldview, though, based on the Bible, it has no problem uh, explaining this. Because the Bible has a very clear explanation for this. And that is that human beings are sinful by nature. Human nature was created good, but it's been corrupted. Evil is part of our fallen human condition. And our greatest need, therefore, is to be redeemed and to be restored from the inside out. And that can only happen in Jesus Christ. Not only does the Bible give us an explanation for why there is evil in the world, but it gives us enormous hope for what can be done about it, how it can be healed. Jesus himself talked about this very thing that we're, we're talking about today. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 7. 
He said, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And he said, uh, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within. And that is what defiles a person. What Jesus is explaining is, is, is exactly this. The problem is with our hearts. It's an inner problem. It's inherent to our nature, to our human nature. It's not merely an outward issue. Therefore, since the problem's with our hearts, what we desperately need more than anything else is a new heart. We need to be born again. We need to become new creations in Christ. Just like we talked about at our baptism last week. You know, we talked about how baptism is this outward symbol and statement that a person has died to the person that they used to be, the natural man. And they've been born again to new life in Christ. They've become a new creation in Christ. They've received a new heart which has new desires. You know, just as Jesus told us, you know, he said the problem is with our hearts. It's at the very core of who we are, at the very core of our nature. But the hope that we have in God is that he will intervene and give us a new heart. And, and, and he promised to do exactly that for all those who give their life over to him and make him their Lord. This is what God promises from uh, prophet Ezekiel chapter 36. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone uh, from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules the curse of sin is death and we all experience that curse, and we suffer its consequences day by day. Things are not the way that they should be. We have a sense of that. They're not the way they were originally designed to be. But the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, the curse of sin has been broken. Through his death on the cross, through his resurrection from the grave, and for all of us who put our faith in him, God promises to give us a new heart and to give us eternal life. And so if you have not done so yet, I would implore you to put your faith in Jesus so that you can have life eternal and be set free from the curse of sin and death. So now we've talked about the curse. Now I want to take a minute to talk about the covering. If you still got your Bibles, you can check those verses. Verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3. We're going to talk about the covering. Now, what did Adam and Eve do after they sinned? After they had this sense of shame? Well, they made clothes for themselves out of fig leaves to cover themselves up. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to do this because you're an extremely biblical person. Uh, I don't know if you ever tried to make clothes out of fig leaves, but they're not very popular, you know. You go to Ross or wherever you shop, and you're not going to find any clothes made of fig leaves. Uh, you don't see a lot of people walking around town in fig leaves. Why? 
Well, uh, two reasons. Number one, they're very itchy. I don't know if you've been around fig trees, but the leaves are itchy. Number two, it's kind of drafty, you know, and uh, that's uncomfortable. Uh, you know, a uh, thing I always think about is that you always see these books that are like dieting books. You ever see these dieting books? And like, this is what Adam and Eve ate, and this is what you should eat too. Just eat nothing but nuts and fruit, and you're going to be good. But what you don't see is books about, you know, like you see the diet of the Garden of Eden. What you don't see is like the fashion of the Garden of Eden, right? Where they're like, hey, wear what Adam and Eve wore. They wore these fig leaves, and you should try that too. No, nobody wants to wear fig leaves. Uh, but what we see is that God saw them, and he had compassion on them. And he said, wow, those fig leaves look terrible for clothing. Let me make you some clothes out of animal skins. And believe it or not, this is an amazing picture of the gospel. The fig leaves were Adam and Eve's attempt to cover up their shame, their own shame, their own guilt. And it was a terrible failure. They were just itchy and drafty. But the garments of skin that the Lord created for them, these were God's solution to cover them from their sin and clothe them, to intervene and cover up their shame and guilt. You know, although, although none of us are actually wearing clothes made of fig leaves, all of us try to cover ourselves with fig leaves like these two did. We try to cover up our nakedness because we have a sense of shame. We have a deep-rooted sense that something is fundamentally wrong with us, and we can't let other people find out. So we put up facades, we create an image, we pose to the world, we put our best face forward, but oftentimes um, it's, it's nothing more than just fig leaves, you know? It's really easy to do this kind of thing on the internet, you know, because you can totally control what people see about you and what they know about you. I, w I read uh, one writer who said that as human beings, we are deathly afraid of not being able to control what people know about us. Because we are afraid that if they find out who we really are underneath our fig leaves, that they will find out who we really are and they will reject us. But God, in his grace and mercy, he comes and he says, Adam and Eve, I see the clothes that you made for yourselves, these fig leaves. They look terribly uncomfortable, and they look ishy because you, I see you have a rash, and they look drafty. And he said, look, I made some new clothes for you to cover you. This is my way of covering you, and it's perfect. Now keep in mind here that, that in order to make clothes made of skins, what was necessary? A sacrifice. Uh, innocent blood had to be shed so that their shame and their sin could be covered up sufficiently. And that again is an amazing foreshadowing of the gospel. Of the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, shedding his innocent blood so that our shame and our sin could be covered. Let me say something real quick is this, that did you know that essentially it is true that all paths in life lead to God? Everyone, the Bible tells us, will eventually stand before God. No matter what, no matter how they live, everyone will eventually stand before God. But what will really matter in that day is what you're wearing. What you're wearing when you stand before God is going to matter a lot on Judgment Day. 
And that's a question everybody needs to consider is, what will I be wearing when I stand before God on Judgment Day? Because what the Bible tells us is that there are essentially three different ways in which people will be dressed when they stand before God on Judgment Day. Uh, There will be those who will stand before God naked. And then there will also be those who will stand before God wearing the rags of their own righteousness, the fig leaves of their own image and righteousness. And and then thirdly, and this is the best uh, situation, is that there will be those who stand before God wearing the beautiful robes of Christ's righteousness, the covering that God gives. And so we have to ask ourselves, what will I be wearing when I stand before God? Jesus told a parable in Matthew 22. So if you got your Bible, feel free. Let's uh, let's go over to Matthew 22, and we're going to read this parable. Okay. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying this, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they did not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw that there was one man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So you read this parable and you think, Man, that's quite the dress code. They take their dress code very seriously, apparently. They had this guy tied up and executed because he was wearing the wrong clothes. That's pretty hardcore. Yes, it is. And, and the point here is, is this. Here's what really matters. What kind of clothes will you be wearing when you stand before God? You know, in this parable, he says that the, the kingdom of God can be compared to a wedding feast that a king threw. The, the wedding feast refers to the kingdom of heaven. And I love that God chose to compare heaven to a wedding feast uh, because I like weddings a lot. Uh, they're like the best parties around. If any of you know of any good weddings going on nowadays, uh, please let me know because I'd, I'd like to be there. And I enjoy weddings. Uh, I especially enjoy Hungarian weddings. If you guys ever get a chance to go to a Hungarian wedding, you should do so. They start at like 5 p.m. and they go into like 5 a.m. And here's the best part. You like start with dinner and then you dance. And then at midnight, you have dinner again. How cool is that, right? And then you just keep going until 5 in the morning. It's awesome. So when I hear that the kingdom of God is like a wedding feast, I kind of imagine a Hungarian wedding feast, you know. Uh, But but some people were invited to this wedding feast, but they didn't come. They didn't care. 
in the same way, there are people that hear the good news of salvation and new life in Jesus Christ, and they just don't bother with it. They just got other stuff to do. Uh, They're too busy with their job or with their video game or with their fixing their house. They don't have time for a wedding feast, so they have other priorities. And the king said, look, if the people whom I invited don't care, then just go out and invite whoever will come in. Just fill this place up. That's what matters. Now, the custom in that day was this. If you would go to a fancy party, uh, the host would provide the clothes. And you can imagine that since this was a king, his party clothes were probably pretty nice. So you would go to the party just whatever clothes you had on. You know, you got your like... uh, you got like your rubber boots on and your overalls because you just came from work. Doesn't matter. You just go there and they'll hand you some clothes and you put them on and, and then you can party. And so everybody at the party would be wearing the same thing because they would all be wearing these special clothes that the host gave them. Everyone would be equal. There'd be no one who had worse clothes or better clothes. They would all be wearing these special clothes which, were, which they had to change into when they got to the party. But here's the problem. Right? Here's, the, here's the essential point of the parable. Is that there's this guy at the party who's not wearing the party clothes. He's not wearing the right clothes. And, uh, and the king gets angry. Why does he get angry? Here's the reason. He's angry because this guy rejected the wedding clothes. This guy essentially said, I don't need those wedding clothes. I don't need your special garments. My garments, my clothes are good enough. And the king says, how dare you say that? How dare you reject my gift? How dare you come to my house, to my party, in your clothes, and tell me that your clothes are good enough, and when I'm telling you they're not? Uh, This would be just a huge sign of disrespect to the king. And that's why the king kicks him out of the house and has him killed. So here's the point of the story. You and I have been invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. That is what the Bible calls God's kingdom. We are invited to be guests of the king. We're invited to his house for a great party. But look how we're dressed. We look terrible. We can't go to a royal party dressed like this. We can only go in if we put on the right clothes. But the good news is that the king wants to give us the clothes that we need. So that we can enter the party. He wants to give it to us as a gift. That's great. But all we got to do is what? We got to accept them and put them on. And and the party clothes in this parable represent the righteousness of Christ. Which we receive as a gift. uh, And we put it on by believing that his sacrifice applies to us and is effective for us individually. Now, Isaiah chapter 61, it says this, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. A person in the story who who refuses to accept the gift of the party clothes, they are rudely and disrespectfully insisting that their clothes are good enough. This is the person who believes that their righteousness, their fig leaves, their pose is good enough to get them into heaven. They're trusting in their fig leaves. And notice, this is the person whom, whom, uh, whom God is most offended by. It says in the parable that both good people and bad people 
were invited to the wedding feast. That didn't matter. God welcomed all the immoral people. But the one who was sent away, the one who made the king angry, was the proud person, the self-righteous person who refused to accept the king's gift of grace, thinking he didn't need it because his own righteousness, his own clothing was good enough for the king's house. And this is the person who on judgment day will be wearing the rags of their own riches, or sorry, of their own righteousness. The Bible says that all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. It's not our bad deeds that are like filthy rags, but our good deeds. Imagine going to a a special dinner uh, and you just show up just wearing filthy rags. Here's the point. What you will be wearing when you stand before God, and and we will all stand before God someday, uh, what you're wearing is going to be very important. Some people will be naked. These are the people who just never thought about the things of God. These are the people who just didn't care, and they will be completely unprepared to meet God. But others will be clothed in the white robes of Jesus's righteousness. These are those people who have said, yeah, I realize that my clothes are not enough. I realize that I am just trying to cover myself in fig leaves. And thank you, King, that you have provided me with the clothes of righteousness, with the covering that I need to enter the wedding feast. So the question is, what will you be wearing? I pray that none of us would make the mistake of this man in this parable thinking that our righteousness is sufficient. We need to realize that our goodness is no goodness at all. We're fallen. We're sinful by nature. We have corrupt hearts. Even our best works are like filthy rags compared to the perfection of God's goodness. They're like fig leaves. They're drafty. They're full of holes. Our goodness is not enough for us to enter the wedding feast of the Lamb. But remember, let us be those who who accept the covering that God has made for us. Not by our own works, but by the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to us when we confess our sin and we say, God, I'm a sinner. I have a wicked heart and I don't make any excuses. I just need you to come into my life and save me and forgive me and redeem me and cover me and change me from the inside out. And finally, from verse 22 to 24, Briefly, let me talk about the sword. We read that Adam and Eve were driven out. They were cut off from the Garden of Eden. And that the reason for this was so that they would not have access to the tree of life. It says, God said, lest they reach out their hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now, why would God not want them to eat and live forever? Why would he cut them off from that opportunity? Well, the reason is this. This is the mercy and the grace of God here. And in this, we see the gospel as well. Because at this point, sin has entered into the world and death through sin because we are cursed and fallen. And God in his mercy, he did not want these people to live eternally in this state, in this condition, in this fallen world. He says that would be a tragedy. So rather than let that happen, What does God do? God intervenes. He says, I'm not going to let you eat of that tree and live forever in this condition. And let me tell you, it's such a glorious thing when, when God intervenes in our life for our sake because of his love 
and his care for us. So God intervenes, and what does he say? He says, no, I'm not going to let him live forever in this condition. I'm going to do something else. I'm going to let him die so that later I can resurrect them to new life. You know, once I've destroyed the curse of sin, once I have made all things new, then I will resurrect them to new life, to eternal life, where there will be no more curse of sin, where there will be no more death, no more destruction, no more pain and sorrow, but rather eternal life with me the way it was meant to be in perfection. He's saying, I'm going to hit the reset button. That is the hope of the gospel, and that is the good news. I'll close just by reading this scripture. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says this, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so shall we bear the image of the man of heaven. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the amazing hope that we have in you. And we thank you for this this glorious gospel of your grace. Lord, we thank you that in you there is hope. Lord, that although we die, Lord, you promise us eternal life, that you will resurrect us to new life for all those who have put their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And Lord, if there's anyone at all who's here today who has not yet put their faith in you, Lord, I pray that you would compel them to do that by your Spirit. Lord, that they would see their lost, fallen condition, and they would see their need to be redeemed and restored and transformed from the inside out. They need a new heart. So, Lord, we ask that you would do that work today. Lord, for all of us who are here, Lord, we ask that you would, even today, create in us a pure heart. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.